Once upon a time, there was a detective named Jim Chi. Jim was very good at his job. He liked his job so much that you might say that it was his calling. He wasn't just any other detective, like a character out of some hard-boiled pulp fiction novel. Jim was a detective on the Navajo reservation. He was part of the Navajo tribal police. Because of that, he felt like his job as a detective was a kind of calling. But he could never shake the fact that alongside this calling as a policeman and a detective, he also had a calling to be a traditional medicine man, a healer, a shaman in what is called by the Navajo people the way of blessing. Now, in our world, whenever someone wants to be a minister, we send them off to seminary and they read ancient texts and scholarly articles. But in Jim's world, if you wanted to become a shaman, you needed the help of an older shaman, a mentor. And toward this end, he enlisted the aid of his uncle Nakai, an old, wizened shaman in the way of blessing. Nakai taught him all of the things that you needed to know, how to do the drawings in the sand, how to do the sacred chants, the words and the intonations, how to mix the herbs in just the right way to bring healing. But he told Jim, there's one more lesson. It's the secret of ministry. It's the secret of blessing. It's the one that unlocks all of the others. Without it, everything else is merely a technique. And Jim said, well, okay, teach it to me. And he said, the time's not right. Well, other things took up Jim's time and interests. He got called away to Washington to study with the FBI and learn the white man's ways of solving crimes. He went from case to case and clue to clue and sign to sign, and never the time was right. But once he was in his uncle's neighborhood near his Hogan, and he said to him almost breathlessly, Uncle, I really don't have much time. I, I'm ready for the secret of ministry. His uncle said, No, son. The wind turned in the wrong direction. The, the weather's not right. It's not the time to tell you the secret of ministry. The writer of James is absolutely convinced that the secret of ministry has something to do with words. He gives us this morning a warning in the negative for any who would be ministers. He calls them teachers. But the word is didaskoi. Not many of you should be didaskoi. Teachers, preachers, pastors, deacons. Not many of you should be campus ministers. Think twice before you take the deacon's exam. Consider what you're doing when you keep your grandkids after school because words have a power. Ministry is bound up with the power of language, and we all use language, and we're all ministers, and James wants us to be on our guard. He says that words have a power to destroy like a poison or like a wildfire out of control. Sure, they're, they're not much in and of themselves. They don't seem to be, but they're like a rudder, a very small thing that turns a mighty ship like the bit in the 
mouth of a horse, not much on its own, but boy, the power and the force that it can turn from side to side, and that's what your words are. Be careful. You ever notice that when you go to the doctor, you got a scratch in your throat, what's the first thing the doctor says? Okay, stick out your tongue. Stick out your tongue, James says, so that I can see what's inside you. Or as the words of the old prayer book say, Lord, open our lips and our mouths will show forth thy praise. I love the concreteness of that language, that our words bring into reality, almost in a visible sense, a world that can be seen. Now, notice already what a good Anglican I'm going to become. <laughs> here I am, not even ordained, first time in the pulpit here, and already you can see I'm going to be a fine Anglican because I have uh, strong opinions about how the old prayer book was better than the new one. <laughs> but there is a concreteness there, right? Words do have a power to create worlds to make something palpable and almost visible. And that's no accident. That is not mere human power that can do that. Because from the beginning, Scripture tells us that the world itself was made with what? Not, not the power and violence and coercion of the other nations of the world? No, the Hebrews said, we know better. We know that the world was made when God said, let there be light, and there was light. Not only is the world made with words, but God furthermore pronounces a benediction on what has been done, on the goodness of what is. Look around. There's a world of blessing here. God says it is good, it is good, yea, it is very good. But very soon, something else sneaks into the world of blessing that God had made. It's a world of cursing. Cain curses his brother, and from then on we see that words can be infected with cursing as well as blessing. And that dynamic reaches a fever pitch in the 11th chapter of Genesis when human beings, forgetting that they were created in the image of God, say to themselves, let us build a tower up into the heavens. And for what purpose? To make a name for ourselves rather than receiving the names that God had given to them, seeing themselves made in the image of God by the word of God, they want to make the world in their own image. Words have a power to make a world, and that world can be filled with blessing or with cursing. Sometimes the words that can be spoken seem like a, just a little thing that's tossed off. But James says they can be like poison-tipped arrows and they can go into someone's heart. And you might pull the arrow out, but the poison remains. So many of you have had words spoken over you that were like poison-tipped arrows. The word itself might not have been much, 
I have a friend who can't shake the memory of his father saying to him, not a curse word, not an outright curse, but his father just said to him once, what is it with you? Words have a power. African-American activist and entertainer Dick Gregory tells another story about the power of words to curse. He said, when I was growing up, we didn't have much money at all, but I never learned shame at home. No, I had to go to school to learn shame. One day, we had been talking for several weeks about the offering of the community chess, the community benevolence. The teacher said, we're going to go around the room, and I want everyone, having talked to your parents, to tell what your parents are going to give to the community chest. And Helen, we're going to start with you. Helen Tucker was the prettiest, most popular, and wealthiest girl in town. She stood up and said, my daddy said that he's going to give $2.50. Oh, Helen, that's so wonderful. You and your family are just such leaders in our community. Person by person, everyone dutifully stood and told the benevolence of their heart. And when they came to Dick, the teacher skipped over her, over him. He wanted to stand up because the whole time that Helen Tucker was talking, he thought to himself, $2.50, that's not much. I've got $15 in my pocket right now from shining shoes down at the bus depot. And I could give it. I don't mind. He had a world of blessing that he wanted to pass on. Well, around and around the classroom they went, and when he realized that she wasn't ever going to get to him, he couldn't contain himself anymore, and he jumped up and said, I- I'm got my daddy, and she said, Richard, you sit down. He said, no, no, Richard, you sit down this instant. He blurted out. He couldn't contain himself. He said, my daddy said he's going to give $15 to the community chest. The teacher said, Richard, we're all taking up money for people like you. And besides, if your daddy's got $15 to give away, then perhaps he ought not be on welfare. And what's more, we all know you don't got a daddy. He said, I walked out and I never went back. The world of blessing that he felt himself entering into was cut off from him. And how long the poison of that lingered in his heart. And you know, it's not just the the poison that we shoot at one another as individuals. If you do that long enough and recreate it long enough, pretty soon the poison gets in the well. It gets in a culture's water supply. Think about the fact that Our entire society is built on trust that ensures something about our words having meaning and purchase. You go to any of the literature of uh, uh, the the, the fall of the Soviet Union, Vaclav Havel or uh, Lech Wałęska, any of that material, and it shows you the ways that that entire culture was poisoned by words, poisoned by a lack of trust, wildfire running out of control, Havel tells the story of one green grocer in particular who put up a sign in his window that said, workers of the world unite. 
He said, now, the greengrocer didn't particularly care about workers or the ideology or the economics of it or anything. He just wanted to be left alone. Even the good things that came out of his mouth and that he put on the sign were just sanctimonious ways of saying, I just want to sell groceries. Stop bothering me. And it undermined his integrity, and that was the case for everyone. Words are like a wildfire that blows out of control. It can destroy. It can set whole societies on fire and reduce them to ember and ash. I think all of us know this well enough that the point doesn't need to be belabored further. You all know that about yourselves, and so you're saying, okay, sure. Now what do we do about it? How can words heal? How can we enter into the world and word of blessing? How can things be different? You're all in with James when he says, your tongue's powerful. It's small, but it's powerful. And you say, yes, I know. And so now what? But I want you to notice something in the text this morning. There's a tension here between what James says in the first three verses and what he says later on down about 12 or 13 or something. Methodists don't do verse numbers. Notice at first he says, control your tongue and you'll control your body. By that, he means your life. Control your tongue, you control your life. Control your tongue, you control your heart. But then notice a little while later, he says something that all of us know is true, which is that the words that you speak come out of your heart, that you can no more control the kind of words that your life bears as fruit than a grape arbor can control the fact that it yields grapes. An olive tree yields olives. It's a natural fact. Some of you kids here uh, might remember that, that line from Rain for Roots. Suppose an I staple some cherries on a maple. No, no, no. No, 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 no. Apples don't grow on pear trees. No apples there. It only grows pears. You can't make something what it's not. A human heart is what it is. Is that all? Now, here's the deal. If you only have control your tongue or else, then we would be in the realm of self-help or therapy or uh, certain sections of the Barnes & Noble bookstore. Anyone coming through those doors, they could have been wandering around uh, out on the orange trail and stumbling here, and they would hear everything I'm saying and say, uh, okay, yeah, sure, we all need to watch what we say and don't be mean in the things that we say. So what? Vague guilt is not what we're after here. We're here for heart transformation. If you try to limit what your tongue says, if in any moral sphere you say, okay, I better not, don't do that, then your heart will be sealed up behind a steel door. But when you allow the transformation of the gospel to take you over from the inside out, then your heart is more open. It's more available, more sensitive to the people and things around you. So how do you get your heart from being a gnarled old tree to something that grows fruit? Well, for that, we're going to have to go to James's brother Jesus. 
couple weeks ago, Daniel preached a sermon on Mark chapter 7. Jesus is having a dust up with the Pharisees. He says, why do you worry about everything on the outside of you? It's what, what is inside that defiles. From inside a person comes all manner of slander and evil speech. And Jesus follows it up with deft psychological insight when he says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance, out of its excess, out of its desire, your desires are not bad if they've been transformed by Jesus. Out of the abundance of your heart, you've got something. Every single one of you, even if you're introverts, you have something that you love to talk about. You have something that lights up the Christmas tree. Every one of you has desires that are so central to who you are that I bet if you begin to trace it out, the problems when you, when you, the, the times when you get in trouble with what you say are problems that are related to the desires of your heart. You think about the guy in, in the Vaclav Havel example, the green grocer. He didn't want any trouble, right? He desires the approval of others, and some of you do. Now, you don't curse. You don't use four-letter words. You're very careful about what you say. But your problem with speech is that you never speak up. You don't speak out. When you see injustice, you just let it ride. Why? I'm not going to trouble the waters. Where are you getting your approval? How about those of you who value your reputation? You want people to think well of you. Well, don't let someone come against your reputation or you will cut them down immediately. Or how about those of us who uh, are intellectually self-important? Don't challenge my ideas or I will come after you. Whatever it is, whatever your heart desires, maybe it's power or success or influence, even in a very small sphere. If making the sale and being the top salesman is your heart's deepest desire, you will use exaggeration and spin to get that sale. Now, both Jesus and James are agreed that when you do that, what's happening is you are defacing the image of God in another person. James and Jesus both say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by earth. Don't swear by anything. Don't say, I swear on a stack of Bibles. The problem there is not four-letter words. The problem is that you are in essence saying to another human being, I don't think your purchase on reality is necessary or perhaps you're not even able, able to see things as they really are. Sometimes we say this to people who are underneath us in the company. Well, you just don't worry about that. We'll, we'll, take, we'll take that from here. Whole political systems have been built on the idea of the noble lie. The rulers, they pull the strings, they know the show. Everybody else, they you just don't worry about it. But when Jesus and James say, let your yes be yes and your no be no, it means the person that you're talking to is made in the image of God. And they deserve the same chance to know what's going on as you do. So don't trick them in any way. For a Christian, 
Every moment of your life is as though you're under oath. Every moment of your life it ought to be just the same in the way you talk as if you were called in front of a court of law. So again, some of you are saying, boy, if the problem's not just my tongue, if it's my heart, what's to be done? Boy, you're telling me my heart's the, the, the cause of all the problems. I mean, people look at me on the outside and they just see a second grade teacher, but boy, let somebody cut me off in traffic and what bubbles up out of me, you'd think it came out of a sea shanty or something. If the problem is your heart, does that mean you're doomed? No, because gospel transformation, the renovation of the heart is not just a real possibility, it is a reality for those of us who have named and known Jesus Christ. This church is not in the business of behavior management. This her church is in the business of deep spiritual transformation, the renovation and revelation of your heart. Only God can work this kind of change in you, and I'll tell you why. Because the things that plague your speech, the language that you participate in in the world out there, is so poisoned that it's not just coming from you. James says, your tongue is not just your business and it's not just what you want to say and not say. No, your tongue is empowered from someplace else. The tongue is set on fire by hell. Now, we academic types, we hear something like that and we say, oh boy, uh, uh, Greco-Roman Peronesis certainly was uh, rhetorically extravagant. James can't really mean that. He's just borrowing materials and just trying to make his point. It's a reality. Our tongues are set on fire from some place that we never see and that we can never own and change on our own. But the good news of the gospel is we can be just as empowered by a world of blessing as we can of cursing. If your tongue is set on fire by hell, God also heals it through fire. You know the old saying, God fights fire, we fight fire with fire. The Lord knows that there is also a fire that comes from heaven. You remember at Pentecost, the apostles were all gathered together, and what happened? Tongues as of fire danced upon their heads and they all began speaking what? About what Mr. Football Man did yesterday? Were they chit-chatting about the weather? No, they were speaking about Jesus Christ and about Him crucified and raised by the power of God and they were empowered by the fire of heaven. And some of you say, oh, well, that's good for charismatics, but uh, we're not still on the day of Pentecost. And, you know, it'd be great if I had been at Pentecost. Maybe then I'd be able to speak a word of witness. Paul says you have that spirit within you. You have it now. It's a gift. It's been given to every single one of you in your baptism. 
And you know that you have it because Paul says the Spirit intercedes for us. It enters into us when when we don't know what to say. When we don't know how to say it, the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words and gives us the power to speak. But again, not to speak about anything. To speak about Christ and to enter into the world that was remade on the cross of Jesus Christ. The Spirit is what enables you to see the reality of Jesus Christ. And the fact that in Christ, God, when he fought fire with fire, he didn't just uh, ramp up the aggression. You you know how it is uh, when two people start arguing, one says something and the other says the opposite things and their faces get redder and their voices get louder. God knows how silly we are with that. So what did God do to heal us? He stopped talking. The one who created the world with a word was silent before his accusers. What does the prophet Isaiah say? Like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was silent before his shearers. Though we reviled him and spat at him and persecuted him, he remained silent. Why? Because this is the one who is the very son of God. He didn't need our approval. He doesn't need status. He's not in competition with us to make the sale or whatever. He already had it and he gave it all away. And so he could remain stock still and silent before the the vulgarity and lies of human speech. Notice everything in his exchange with Pilate is a way of detaching truth from power, especially the, the power that is grasped by human beings through words. Pilate says, oh, so you're a king. Jesus says, you say so. I come from a place where the truth matters. (laughs) What is the truth? There's only power. I've got it and you don't. There's no truth. Language is nothing. Power is everything. You say so. To every one of us, God lets us have our head and say what we'll say. And on the cross, the fever pitch of lies about God came to a head. And even there, he received the curse and kept blessing us. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're saying. I just love the irony of the way John's gospel says that Pilate, the man who didn't care about words, when he sees Christ being crucified, he puts a sign up there that says, King of the Jews. And people don't like what he said. Because words have import and they say, take, take, the, take that off the, take that sign down. What did Pilate say? What I've said, I've said. Just as the rocks cry out in praise of him, every human life one day will confess with its tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Now you can say that when you get up and recite the creed. You can pray that in the prayers. But the gospel issue today is how does that work down into your heart? Because if you say, if you confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, but you're still seeking human approval, you still can't take criticism, you still say things that you wish you hadn't said, then you've got to disconnect. You're one of those people that James calls a hearer of the word and not a doer. If James had only said, get your tongue right and your heart will follow, that might be self-help. But if he had only said, get your heart right and your tongue will follow, that would be naive spiritualism. You've got to work that out back and forth. Is my life bearing fruit of what I say is true? Let me put it to you this way. Uh, not too long ago, I, I had to replace uh, one of those light bulbs in the van. And so I looked it up on YouTube, as all smart men do, and I, I, I watched the whole five-minute video. Piece of cake. Oh, easy. I grabbed the bulb, went outside, popped the hood. As soon as I popped the hood, I was like a child lost in a movie theater. No clue. I reached down. Oh, what did that video say? Went back in the house and I watched the video. And I went back out and I was like, now, did they say turn it and then pull or pull and turn? And you know what happened next. I take the laptop out and I set it right up on the breather cap and I'm watching the video as I do it. When I hear the word, my actions follow. And when I see the way that my actions aren't measuring up, I go back to the word. I stick out my tongue and what's in my heart comes out and I can see it. I can behold it. I can know where I really am. That's what the Christian life is over the long haul, friends. And we want to present you an opportunity to do that with one another. Tex has set up community groups. And Father Daniel and the leadership team have been uh, really pleased. We've got 50 adults who were signed up for this. And if you want to sign up for it, there's still room for you to do this. And basically, we're going to do this thing like with the video. I go to the Word. What did Father Daniel say in the sermon today? What was said? How does my life bear that out? What are my struggles? And you go back and forth. Am I living what I say that I believe? Sure, this is one strategy that this church wants to use to help you be transformed within the depths of your heart. There could be other strategies. It could be meditative prayer or whatever. The strategy is not the thing. The technique is not the secret of transformation and ministry. I bet some of you are wondering what happened to our old friend Jim Chi. He had the techniques, but he never got the last lesson, the secret. One day he got a call from the hospital, and Uncle Nakai was near to death. And as he walked into the hospital room, Nakai pulled the mask from the side of his face and said, it's, it's time for me to tell you the secret of blessing. He said, Father, am, am, I, ready? am I ready? He said, I don't know. But before I sleep, I need to tell you. 
the great spirit has made the world and everything around us and filled it with beauty and blessing. But people find it so hard to believe because they're filled with pain. They're out of harmony. They've forgotten where they are. And so you have to be the one to tell them. But they won't believe you either unless you believe it. And then your confidence will become their confidence. For those of us with ears to hear, the Holy Spirit swept over the face of the deep, bringing life and beauty and blessing, but people find it hard to believe that because their lives have been poisoned against beauty. So you must tell them again, but please, friends, only tell them from the depths of the places where Christ has stitched your heart back together. And if we can somehow find a way to do that, then a harvest of peace will be sown in righteousness for those who speak peace through the power of the word. Amen.